0: Pharisee, recorded July 19, 1998, in North Atlanta Church of Christ. And I had prepared a special lesson for tonight about Jesus the Pharisee, but I was just wondering, you know, if there's not too much new things for you guys in one day. Uh, I also noticed that it was announced that I will speak in the Sunday school about preaching the gospel in a postmodern age which is a very important teaching. So I'm going to do that tomorrow at lunch. And I urge all of you that we're planning to come to come, because it's it's something that's very important for us to understand a little bit about where we live and our culture and, and why certain things are seem difficult for us in our own culture in modern Western world. But uh, I do want to say something, you know, about Bill and Laura Long. Laura and Bill are some of the, my favorite people. When I was 16 years old, 16 and a half, and I landed in South Georgia at the edge of the hoki swamps down there in Dasher, uh, the closest thing to a Jew was the alligator. He had a long nose. Uh, Laura Long took me in as... as Her son, she darned my socks and washed my underwear. And I took my laundry there over the two years that I was in Dasher. uh, She did my laundry many, many of the time. And so I feel very close to them. And of course, I cry to God every day. And the congregations in Israel pray for Laura Long every day. And I'm very, very happy to hear that this congregation has decided to make a fast and urge people to literally fast. And pray to God for the sake of this sister, but not only for her, for all the sick and the afflicted that are in this family. We're a family, and and one can't be happy while the other one is is suffering. And we need to learn to, to share some of that burden together, and I praise God that this decision was made by the congregation here. I also want to say to people that were planning on taking the trip with Bill Long and and others and Dan to uh, Israel next spring that the trip is on. Even though Bill is not sure that he will be able to come, the trip is on, Dan is coming, others are coming. We're going to uh, see some of the seven churches, most of the seven churches in, in Turkey, in Asia Minor, the land of Israel, and the piece the resistance is climbing Mount Sinai at dawn. Yeah, And see the sunrise from Mount Sinai. It's a very moving experience. Start getting in shape. <laughs> uh, those of you that can't walk a lot will get you on a camel. And I'm not joking. You ride a camel up the hill on a narrow path about the, as wide as this table. Uh, the narrow side of this table. And some of the camels are blind with one eye, like I am.
1: Uh,
0: But the issue of Jesus the Pharisee is a very, very strange issue for you, because normally in the Christian world, the word Pharisee is a negative word, isn't it? We've inherited a very negative attitude toward the Pharisees. And uh, the New Testament is full of criticism of the Pharisees. There's one whole chapter that is criticism of the Pharisees. It says seven times in that chapter, says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tied from the mint and the cumin and the frankincense. And we say, oh, Pharisee is a bad thing. I want to change this view. And to put it in more biblical perspective. But in order to do this, I have to tell you about some ishi- a little bit about history of the Jewish people in the BC, before Jesus Christ was born. How did people know what the will of God is in the Bible before the time of the Pharisees? In the Old Testament, if you wanted to know the will of God, how did you discern the will of God? Raise your hand. This doesn't have to be a sermon. It can be a study together. How did people know or discern the will of God for their lives before they returned from the exile? Who knows? Did they have a Bible? Yes, go ahead. A priest or a prophet? Absolutely. You know, you wanted to know what the will of God is, you went to the priest. The priest had a little pouch. In the pouch you had two stones. A white stone and a black stone. They were called the Urim and the Tumim. I may not be pronouncing it exactly like you do in the south. The Urim and the Tumim, or something like that, Right? You know what I'm talking about. And you'd go to the priest and say, Should I buy a house and get in debt for life or not? And the priest would stick his hand inside this pouch. The two stones were equal in size, equal in weight, and equal in texture. So he could not feel which stone he's taking, the black one or the white one. If he would take the white one, it means, yes, go ahead, get in debt, buy the house. If not, it would be the black stone, and it would say, God said, no, don't do it. That was the Urim and the Tumim. Or they went to a prophet. You know a fabulous story of how this works when king well, it wasn't the king, when Saul and his servant lost the donkeys of Saul's father. Let's read that story from Second, uh, from First Samuel, chapter nine, and we'll start reading probably from verse uh, nine. No. Oh. From verse 3 we'll start, just to give you a little bit of background of the donkeys. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Saul, take one of of the servants with you, and go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim, and through the area around Shalisha, But they did not find them. They went on into the district of Shalim, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they reached the district of Tzuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, No, to his servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. But the servant replied, Look, in this town there is a man of God. He is highly respected and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take. The man of God will direct us where to find the donkeys. Saul said to his servant, If we go, what can we give the man? The food in our sacks is gone. We have no gift to take to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered him again. Look, he said, I have a quarter of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God so that he will let tell us what way to take. Formerly in Israel, if a man went to inquire of God, he would say, come let us go to the seer. Because the prophet of today used to be called a seer. Good, Saul said to his servant, come let us go. So they set out for the town where the man of God was. In this short story, that ends up the donkey was looking for a jackass and found the crown. Yeah, a lot of people today look for a crown and they find a the jackass. Yeah. And uh, in this story it revealed to us a little bit about the life of them. If you wanted to know something from God, you went to the men of God and you paid the men of God. The prophets didn't work for free. Did you realize that? I mean, today you go to some churches... There is 20 prophetesses. They all want to give you their message for free. Even if you don't want it, they give it to you. Yeah? But in the old days, the prophets, you had to give them something. A gift. Or money. Or a chicken. Yeah? Or or something in exchange for the word of God that you received. And the argument between Saul and his servant is, we don't have anything to, to give the man of God. How can we go and ask him? So a prophet was one of the ways that people could discern what the will of God is. The priest was another way. He had the ephod, the breastplate, with the tribal stones. And if it was a national matter or a tribal matter, you went to the priest and, and the ephod, like in Star Trek's, the stone of that tribe started to shine. Light up. And they knew the will of God. And sometimes they used lots. Like the apostles did in Acts chapter 1. When they were trying to replace Judas. They cast lots. And the lot fell on Joseph. A person that was with the apostles. Or Matthias. Was also called Joseph. Uh, that was with the apostles and with Jesus throughout the three years of his ministry. And so Jesus after the resurrection. Yeah, but they did it by lots. And when the lot fell on, on Matthias, they said, this is the one that God has chosen. What you never hear in the Old Testament. Is that you can discern the word, the will of God by Reading. A book, right? There is no example of somebody wanting to find the will of God and he goes and reads the book. The book was in the temple. The Bible, and probably not all of it as we know it today, was in the temple. In the treasury, in the library of the temple. And it was the property of the priest. And the priests studied the law of Moses. And they discerned from the law of Moses the practical things of their ministry. But it wasn't considered like a public property to have the Bible. So where did we get, and you have this very interesting passage, that if you don't know something... You go to the priest or to the judge that is sitting at the gate of the city. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 8, I think. Maybe somebody can get up and read that. Deuteronomy 17, verse 8 and on.
1: Cases come before your courts that are too difficult for you to judge, whether bloodshed, lawsuits, or assaults.
0: Take them to the place the Lord your God will choose. Go ahead. Go to the priests who are Levites and to the judge who is in office at that time. Inquire of them and they will give you the verdict. You must act according to the decisions they give you at the place the Lord will choose. All right. So you see here very clearly, if you have a problem... In lawsuits concerning bloodshed, lawsuits, assaults, plagues, problems with your brother, with your neighbor. Where do you go? You go to the priest who is a Levite or to the judge that is sitting at the gate further down the chapter. There was no concept that an individual who is not a priest can take a book and discern the will of God. Where did we get this concept? It was the Pharisaic revolution. The Pharisees had a revolution. At around 200 BC. And they said something very, very provocative. They said the Bible is for everyone. The law of Moses... They didn't have the New Testament there, right? 200 BC. They had only the Old Testament. They said the Bible, the Word of God, the Torah, in Hebrew the Torah means the instructions of God, is for everyone. Wow! What a revolution! That means that if you're a carpenter, and you want to know the will of God, you study the Word of God. When we get to the New Testament, that is already a self-evident truth. When Paul writes Timothy and says, All Scripture is inspired or filled with the Spirit or written by the Spirit, whatever you want to translate it, by the Spirit of God. And it is good for teaching and for correction and for reproof and for equipping the men of God unto all good works. Paul is already standing on the foundation of this revolution that the Pharisees did 200 years before Jesus Christ. The Catholic Church in, in history had not allowed, one of our brothers said this morning, had not allowed people to read the Bible. Only the priests had access to the Bible, and in some churches you can still see in some medieval churches in Europe that the Bibles were chained to the pulpit. They were not allowed to be taken out of the church. And people didn't have Bibles. Today, every one of us has three or four Bibles. Different versions, different translations. Pocket size, table size, wedding size. You know, you have to have a caddy for some of them to carry it for you. You have it on your computer. You can search through it in different translations. We're living in a... In a but all of that didn't, wouldn't have come around without this revolution that the Pharisees made. So they said, The Bible is for all. Everyone can discern the will of God... By reading and studying the Bible. You know, you Gentiles didn't have a Bible. You didn't know God. And so the Jews were arguing what to do with you. Some said, get the knife out. We take care of these Gentiles. Some said, no, let's spare them. They need all they can get. And the apostles got together... In Acts 15, and they decided, let's not make it difficult on the Gentiles. Let's require from them the minimum of what the law requires so that we can have fellowship. Abstain from blood, from eating meat strangled, and from sexual immorality, and from idolatry. These four things that were commanded already from the days of Noah to all the world, And they further in verse 19 through 21, they said, But if they want to know more, pay attention, open your Bibles. Acts 15. So if they want to know more, what should they do? What do the Gentiles should do if they want to know more about God? They should go to the synagogue, for Moses is being read every Sabbath. Where was Moses being read? In the synagogue. Why in the synagogue? Because that's the only place they had the books. People didn't have Bibles. They had scrolls. You know, if you want to buy a scroll for your congregation today, you know how much it costs today? A scroll of the, only the five books of Moses, not the whole Bible. The minimum of a kosher scroll is $15,000. Most of them cost more like $35,000. Because it, it takes a man a whole year's work. Eight hours a day. To copy the five books of Moses by hand. And do it right. And make sure that he didn't miss any letter. Or any word or any sentence. Yeah? That's what it costs. You can buy a used one for six, seven thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars if it's in good shape. So people don't have scrolls, you know, like we have Bibles printed in the modern printing press. It's a precious thing. And scrolls in the time of Jesus were even more precious and more rare. The whole community would get together And would hire a scribe, and that scribe would work a year to copy and to prepare, and make sure that the the scroll that he has copied is kosher, doesn't miss something. And so Bibles were not plentiful. So Paul and, and, and Peter and James, that they got in Jerusalem with the apostles, they said, if the Gentiles want to know more, where are they going to go? Go to the synagogue where Moses is being read every Sabbath. That is evidence that the early church was standing on the roots, on the foundation of this Pharisaic revolution that made the Bible available for all mankind. And in fact, it wasn't for the, if it wasn't for the Pharisees, we wouldn't have a Bible at all. Do you realize that? Because all the translations of the Old Testament are based on the Pharisaic reading. And the Pharisaic reading is based on the work that the scribes did in this, between the 7th and the 9th century A.D. That they put in the vowels into the text. You know, in our congregation, we have a scroll. And every Sabbath, we open it up and we read. Do you know that it's only consonants? There is no vowels? Try reading without vowels. If the text was only a consonant, that means that the word G-D could be God, could be good, could be goody, gaudy. You know? Could be many things. You have to know the text and the reading. And that came to us from the tradition of the Pharisees. Yeah? So now let's get to Jesus. Was Jesus a Pharisee or not? Well, I propose to you that Jesus was a Pharisee. Because Jesus believed in the supernatural. Did he believe in the supernatural? The Pharisees Believed in the supernatural. He believed in angels. Did he believe in angels? An, An angel came and talked to his mother and to Joseph, the carpenter. And the New Testament starts the gospel with this story. Obviously, Jesus and the New Testament writers believed in angels. Third, Jesus believed that the word of God was for all. Because he argued with the Pharisees and he asked them, don't you know what is written in your law? You know, he took what is written in the law as authority, as a license, so that he could do his ministry and live his life. Now people say, well, then if he was a Pharisee, why did he argue so much against the Pharisees and he called them hypocrites and he called them, you know, blind guides. And he called them, you know, brood of vipers. Horrible things. Why did he do that? When is the last time that somebody maligned the Buddhist in this congregation? You heard a sermon against Zen Buddhism over here? Why? Your elders agree with the Zen Buddhist? Why didn't you hear a sermon about Zen Buddhism? Or against Islam? You heard a sermon against Islam? Why not? Islam is not close to you. It doesn't interest you. doesn't bother you. There are lots of Zen Buddhists in your neighborhoods. Yeah? And there are lots of Muslims in your neighborhoods. It doesn't bother you. They are not very close against who you malign the most. And complain the most. Against the Baptist, They're the closest to you. And they get, they malign you the worst. Why? You're so much alike. That's why. You know that you only criticize the people that you care about. You only criticize the people that you're close to. You only criticize those that you want to identify with. Do you realize that? Those that touch your skin. Those are the ones that you criticize the most. If you don't care about them, you don't bother to criticize them. They are not close to you. That's why you didn't hear a sermon against Islam, or against Zen Buddhism, or against some other cult. It's only those that you come in contact with and you think that they ought to know better and you think that they should do better and that they deserve better. That's the ones that you criticize. And that's the ones that Jesus criticized. They came to Jesus. They invited him to their house for dinner. They said, this man is a prophet. He should know better than dealing with this prostitute. Yeah. Remember that story? In Luke 7, Simon the Pharisee invites Jesus to his house for dinner. You know how many times th- there is how many different stories there are in the gospels of pharisees inviting Jesus to their house? Lazarus, what was he? A Pharisee. Simon was a Pharisee. Simon the Just. That was waiting to see the salvation of God in the temple. When the mother of Jesus brought the baby to the temple. Yeah. He was a Pharisee. One of the famous rabbis of his day. Yeah. Paul. What was he? Pharisee says. I am a Pharisee of the Pharisees. This point I want to belabor just a little bit. You criticize and you malign and you fight with people that are closest to you. People that are far from you, from another culture, from another sect, from another party, from another continent. They could be your neighbor. You're not going to fight with them. You don't feel any kinship with them. But somebody is so close to you, but there is one or two small things that... Are different. With this guy, you're going to fight. You are not going to call somebody total stranger hypocrite. Why? Why won't you call somebody who's a total stranger a hypocrite? Because you don't know them that well. You're not so close to them, right? So you, you can't accuse somebody of hypocrisy if you don't know what he should do, and if you don't know if he can do it, you only criticize and call somebody a hypocrite if you know that he knows the truth, if you know that he is capable of doing the truth, if you know that he is neglecting doing what is right on purpose, you call him a hypocrite. But if he's a total stranger, an enemy, you're not going to call him a hypocrite. Right? I'll never forget, in 1981, the first time that I was invited to go to Finland. In January of 81. Bitter cold. A Lutheran priest invited me to go with him on an 18-day speaking tour where every night we spoke in a different city in, in the largest churches and cathedrals in Finland. Lutheran cathedrals. And in the largest one of them all, in the city of Tampere. It was 35 below zero centigrade. Howling wind and snowstorm outside. Huge church that the ceiling of it was 35 meters long. Multiply that by 3 foot to a meter. So it's more than a 100 feet high ceiling. Huge church. That was built by the architect Alvar Aalto. Very famous architect in in Finland and in Europe. And the church was full. 1,200 people. All bundled up in furs. And I spoke about how I became a Christian. The priest. The Lutheran priest of that church. Got up after my speech. With tears in his eyes. And he asked the people of that church. Today, who are the Pharisees? He said, we, as Christians, are the Pharisees today. Of course, about the Church of Christ, you can't say that they're Pharisees, because they're all Sadducees. They don't believe in the supernatural. Am I right? Have you changed? Hallelujah! Praise God! There is revival in the Church! Yeah. You believe in angels. Hallelujah. Praise God. It's wonderful, isn't it? There is change in the air. Yeah. But traditionally, we were more sadduceic than pharisaic. Yeah. In many ways. So Jesus criticized the Pharisees because he was close to them and he believed in their way. He just didn't like what they were doing. Look what Jesus said in Matthew 23. Somebody open your Bible in Matthew 23 verses 1 and on. Read loud. Till I tell you enough. Till verse 4. 1 to 4.
1: Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples... The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must, uh, must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them.
0: Alright, notice, notice the attitude of Jesus toward the Pharisees. He says, they sit at the seat of Moses. What does it mean to sit at the seat of Moses? It means they have authority. In Israel, we're very fortunate. In our time, so many archaeological discoveries were made. There were two seats of Moses found. One in the synagogue in Korazin. That was where Jesus was spending most of the years, three years of his ministry. Around Capernaum, Beit Seda, and Korazin, right? In the synagogue of Korazin, from the time of Jesus... There was a beautiful black granite stool throne found, and on the front of that throne, it said in Aramaic, "Cathedra de Moshe," the cathedra of Moses, the seat of Moses. It's interesting that the the Greek words are exactly this. In Greek, "Cathedra de Moshe" is exactly what it says in Matthew 23, verse 2. So, one was found there, another one in a place called Susia, north of Hebron, in Judea. Also, a a seat of Moses. So, it it was talking about something literal, not something uh, spiritual. The seat of Moses was a real seat. And when the rabbi would finish reading the law from the scroll, he would sit down to expound the text, to do exegesis on the text of what he read. And so Jesus says, the Pharisees have the authority to sit on the seat of Moses. That means to exegete the law. Whatever they tell you. He's talking to the disciples, notice. Whatever they tell you, you should do, you should do. Jesus is putting a stamp of approval of the Son of God on the teaching of the Pharisees. I know it's new to you. Don't let it blow your mind. Relax. Take a deep breath. But here is the text in Matthew 23 that we read. It says, whatever they tell you you should do, you should do. But what? Don't do what they do. Why? Because they preach and they don't practice. Because they put heavy burdens telling you all the obligations and the commandments you have. And they don't lift a finger to help you carry the burden. Because they do what they do so that they could get the praise of men. They lengthen their phylacteries. And their tassels on their tzitzit, on their prayer shawls. Because they tied the mint and the cumin. But they don't do the heavier matters of the law. Of love and righteousness and the grace of God. Yeah. I'm in a good mood. I don't want to say what Jesus said about the churches of Christ. Yeah? But I tell you that in a positive way. If we would do what we preach, there is nobody preaching the truth of the New Testament closer than the churches of Christ in the modern world. I'm not talking about our pet peeves, but it, the basics of how to become a Christian. The Church of Christ teaches the most truth, in my opinion. There's other areas that we neglect. And other areas that we stuck on tradition. Yeah. But if we would practice even what we preach, There would be no end to the revival that would come to the whole world. And to the United States of America especially. But that's true about any group. It's true about our congregation in Jerusalem. We're also Pharisees. In that sense of the world. We also pay attention to the cup on the outside more than what's on inside. We also have people who left the church because of what we didn't do that we should have done that we couldn't have done anyway even if we wanted to do. Yeah. We have the same problems. But here is the attitude that Jesus has toward the Pharisees. They sit on the seat of Moses. In the book of Acts. Who comes to the help of, the, of Peter and John when they're in jail? Who says, leave these men alone, do nothing about it. If it is the will of God, nothing that you do can stop them. Gamaliel. Who was Gamaliel? A Pharisee. One of the great rabbis of his day. The teacher of Paul. The Pharisee. You know? I want you to think about this in, in this perspective. A lot of the tradition that has happened in, in Christianity and a lot of the negative attitude toward the Pharisees was not really toward the Pharisees. It was toward all the Jews. It was the anti-Semitic roots that came from the pagan cultures of the ancient Greco-Roman world that were filtered into the church in Rome in Constantinople and were never purged by the reformers or by the restorers or by Campbell and Stone. They were never looked at in the New Testament historical first century setting. But they just used these negative things about the Pharisees and glued them against all the Jews. Do you agree with me or not? Challenge me. Make my day. You know? This is the truth. Christianity suckled from the wolf of Rome. The hatred toward the Jewish people. And they use this criticism against the Pharisees. Identifying the Pharisees as all the Jews. But if you examine the evidence itself in the New Testament, the harsh words of Jesus against the Pharisees was because he himself identified. Look what the book of Acts says about who the Pharisees are. In Acts 23, when Paul is in front of the Sanhedrin, there are Sadducees and Pharisees in the Sanhedrin. If you need to go, don't be afraid. Get up and go, say, wave, goodbye, and we all wave to you and you can go. I know I'm running a few minutes over time. Okay? In Jerusalem, that's how we do. Verse 6 through 9. Who's going to read for me? Go ahead. You have the microphone, read. Read.
1: Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all.
0: Alright, uh, Paul said, I am a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. How long has he been a Christian in Acts 23? Remember, Acts 23 is after he finished his third missionary journey. After he had written already at least eight of the letters of the New Testament. Ten years, probably more, of his ministry... And Paul still says, he doesn't say, I was a Baptist and now I became a member of the Church of Christ. In the past tense. He says, he doesn't say, I was a Pharisee and now I became a Cocker Spaniel. Yeah? He says in the present tense, I am a Pharisee. Like in Romans chapter 9 and chapter 10. He says, I am, or in Philippians 3. I am a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Not I was. I remember, and I'm ashamed of it. I remember, like today, in 1962, Bill Long took me. He said, we're going to a very rich church. I want you to do a good job and help me raise a lot of money. And they put me as a 16-year-old skinny kid in the pulpit of the San Jose Church in Jacksonville. And I said, I was a Jew and now I became a Christian. I remember saying that. you know. And then my conscience struck me. How could I stop being Jewish by believing that another Jew is the Son of God? But, but that's how I was taught, that if you believe in Jesus, you're no longer Jewish. Here Paul believed in Jesus, already was beaten 39 stripes, already was in jail twice for, for preaching the gospel. They had to, you know, take him out of the city by night in a basket over the wall to keep him from getting killed. And he still says, I am a Pharisee. A son of a Pharisee. I think that we need to change our attitudes toward the New Testament. And toward our faith. On some very basic things. If we want to see, first of all, that we are walking in the light and in the truth. Second, if we want to continue the restoration movement. Third, if we want to see the blessing of God come on our lives and on our churches and on our countries and bring a real revival for the kingdom of God. Because the thing that made the only thing that can distinguish us from the rest of the world is truth. Not the way we sing, not what kind of buildings we have, not what kind of clothes we have. Truth is the only valid mark of distinction for the family of God's children. Yeah? And if we want the truth, we've got to reconnect with our roots. With the roots of our faith. And I'm prejudiced. We've got to reconnect with the Jewish people. And with the, with, with the people of Israel. Because we have sinned. There is blood on our hands as Christians over the centuries from our attitude toward the Jewish people. We have taught things that we have inherited from the Catholic Church that, that God has rejected Israel. And that now the church is the new Israel. Haven't we taught that in the churches of Christ? We have. But it's diametrically opposed to what the Word of God teaches. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, Has God rejected His people whom He foreknew? Talking about the people of Israel. And the answer that Paul gives is different than the answer that Foy Wallace gave. May God bless his soul wherever it may be. Paul says, no, God forbid, God has not rejected the people whom, his people whom he foreknew. For I too am an Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. And he goes on, I am in the present tense when he was writing the book of Romans. And you know, if you come to Jerusalem, you'll see Jews worshiping God in the name of Jesus Christ. Our congregation. Movement. Not enough, but some. You can't go to any Messianic congregation, Jewish congregation around the world, that you will not find books that were written in our congregation by people of our congregation. Yeah? The first book I wrote, I took Basil Barrett Baxter's advice. He said, don't publish any book before you're 50. Because otherwise you'd have to repent many times over. So I waited till I was 50 to to publish my first book, the book uh, uh, commentary, a commentary on the Jewish roots of Romans, that is out. Some of you have already bought it. Uh, but you come to Jerusalem, you see a congregation of Jews. They worship like Jews. They don't have to have the same wrapping. The same box. They have to have the same Savior. They don't have to sing the same songs. I mean, tonight I was here, and this morning, I didn't know any of the songs you sing. All of them are new. Praise God. You come to Jerusalem, we don't sing the great songs of the church. We sing the songs of King David, of Isaiah, of Revelation, of the Apostle Paul. My elders from the church in California that supports me came one time and said, we don't feel that this is a church of Christ. Say, why not? Say, well, you don't sing the same songs. I asked, do you think that the church in Corinth in the time of Paul sang, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never fails. Yeah. Or on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. Paul never heard of the guy that wrote the song. I mean, we don't have to sing the same songs. We don't have to wear the same clothes. We wear the prayer shawl, yeah, and we read from a scroll of the law, written by hand on leather. Yeah. So what? This is our wrapping. You have a different wrapping. We are brothers. We belong to the same head. Jesus Christ. We are part of the same body. You know. We have the same spirit. We are baptized by the same baptism. We are brothers. But we are Jews and you are Gentiles. And we need each other. That's what the church is all about. When Paul was writing to the Ephesians... And he said, God, Jesus Christ broke the middle wall of partition and made the two into one. He was talking about Jew and Gentile that became into one. Right? So we are one. And that tradition and those covenants and those promises are ours together because we belong. We suck our life from the same root. We are on the same tree and we all have to be fruit-bearing branches. But our attitude toward the Jewish people and toward the Pharisees has got to get more in line with the Scriptures. We've got to overcome our prejudices, racial prejudices against Jews, against blacks, against Asians, against Indians, against whoever it may be. Because God has a plan that encompasses all of mankind. And Jesus was a Pharisee. And praise God for the Pharisees that gave us this rich tradition and said the Bible is for all thousand years before Martin Luther was born. And made God available to mankind through a written book. That is available to all tonight. Through a living spirit that brings this book to life. Not only through the book. But through the living spirit of God that brings whatever is written in this book to life. Yes, Paul was a Pharisee. And Jesus was a Pharisee. We don't have to be hypocrites to be Pharisees. Yeah. There were some Pharisees who were hypocrites. And there are some Christians who are hypocrites. And there are some members of our congregation in Jerusalem who are hypocrites. And some in your congregation in Atlanta that are hypocrites. About Abilene and Nashville I'm not even talking They're very close to my heart. That's why I can criticize them. Uh, But. We've got to. The bottom line is. We've got to get back. And continue the restoration process. And appreciate the roots. On which our faith. Is standing. And may God give you. A lot of strength. Strength. And healing for the sick physically, for the sick spiritually, for the sick mentally. And bless you financially. And give you every tool that you may need in your life to serve him. With all your heart and with all your might and with all your soul. And when your children come to you and they ask you. Like a number of times in the law of Moses, the law predicts. And says, like in Exodus 12, and says, when your children come to you and ask you, what is all this service that you are doing? What are you going to answer them? The Bible is for all. We've experienced it. And you can experience it tonight too. If you have something to share. Something to repent of if you want to give your life to Jesus Christ. If you want to repent from anti-Semitism. Tonight is a good night as we stand and sing. Netivya www.netivyah.org